Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, I'm joined by Francois Hollinger, CEO at Shrupi. Francois, how are you? I'm pretty fine. What about you? I'm doing great. I know it's a little bit later, obviously, in France. It's a beautiful Florida morning here on a Monday, and I love work, so I couldn't be more excited about being here and talking with you. I want to start here because we have a lot of listeners, but they're mostly here in the U.S., and you've spent the majority of your career working all on different places throughout Europe. I believe you told me Germany. Obviously, you've been in France for quite a bit of time. Let's talk about that. Let's start there. What are the differences of corporate culture and working in, let's say, in France or in Germany? Give us some ideas of what it's like to work there that might be different from people who work here and only have worked in the United States. Now, first of all, I have to say I really love the U.S., to be honest. I spent a lot of time there when I was young. I did some summer camp when it came to basketball. So I also kind of catch some parts of the U.S. period when I started my career in Paris. Then I moved to Germany for Flixbus. So in general, what I would say is super different is probably the approach you have to work. Because France, we are always perceived as a country that is keep on striking, you know, with people that keep on protesting. But on the other hand, I find French people... I would say quite efficient and quite committed to their job. They really like working long hours and really provide the extra mile that makes it so special. And when I moved to Germany, it was totally different because German, they really like the process. You know, they like to follow the steps and people, they kind of basically stay into their silos. So that also makes French so special because ultimately we like to go around to circumvent things. That's also what makes it so special. And as I understood also with the U.S., they are more French than Germany in some ways. That's also what makes us more efficient. I love that. I love that. And you're absolutely right. I'm actually half German and that process aspect, I think it's genetic in the blood because that's definitely a big part of my identity and who I am as a professional. And I'm coming to visit France in the summer with my family. So I'm very excited for that trip. Hopefully we can meet up in person and maybe have, I don't want to generalize here, but a baguette, maybe some coffee. We'll sit down, have a good time. Very much looking forward to it. So listen, you are the first person I've had on working for a French national company. You are working with Troopy, and this is a company that I'm super fascinated about. I want to know what drew you to Troopy. Can you tell us a little bit about Troopy? And let's talk a little bit about the core values of the company, because obviously anytime you join somewhere, it's important that it aligns with your core values. So I'm interested to know, tell us about Troopy, but also what drew you to the company. That's actually a really good question because, you know, when you construct your career, first year, you try to really develop yourself, get some big titles on the resume. And then at some point, you're just looking straight into the company and say, okay, what can you bring me more? And I was at that time at Flixbus where unfortunately COVID hit. So I was, okay, which is going to be the new challenge? And then my president called me to say, okay, there is an opportunity because... Troopy was a small startup at that time, you know, it was a small startup. We were doing moped companies, sharing mopeds, having around 300 there in Paris, which is relatively small at that time. And he was like, yeah, okay, we have a big deal with Yamaha, these motorcycle producers. We're going to scale from 300 to 3000. And we need this guide who's going to drive the change, the scale. Okay. And I think that's what really fascinated me the most is like, yeah, okay, you come for an industrial project because that's what it's all about. 
but it's also about you can basically draw a new picture with the new values in there because if you take over such a company, then you know it's going to scale to 100, 200, 300 employees. Then you can basically decide what you want to convey as key values. And when you asked about the values, what matters to me the most is that two things probably is enable people to really construct a career in a fast-growing organization. It's not just only about, oh, you can become CEO. It's more about you can develop fast if you provide a lot of effort, but in a safe environment, I would say. And the second part would be inclusivity because I come from mobility and mobility is paradoxically one of the less inclusive environments. When it comes to you're in a wheelchair or you're women in a bus, you don't always feel safe. And that's something I want to tackle anyway. And being the boss of the company, it actually enables you to do it. Yeah. I'm going to dive into that more because I'm very interested in that. But I want to ask you something because I have you here. I'm curious. Our company is going through, we've been around for about 12 years. Obviously, we're a startup. We've moved on and become more mature as a business. And now we're getting into the point where we're trying to do some very dramatic scaling. Obviously, that's a big reason what drew you to Troopy is being part of something that was going to grow exponentially like that. Do you have any type of like first principles or anything around what got you here won't get you there, right? There's certain things you do as a startup founder and as a startup environment that's very different than if you want to take it to 3,000, 300,000 like you talked about. Do you have any principles that come to mind when you think about what the differences are between a startup and a company that you're trying to blitz scale? I could quote two already. The first one is what you do when you're five. Please never do it when you are 500. It means you handcraft stuff when you are five and you deep dive into specific topics, especially when you are the boss of the company. And that's something you cannot allow yourself to do it anymore. So at some point when you are five, everything is an exception. But when it's 500, as I mentioned, it should be processed. Yeah. So you really need to be sure that you streamline everything. And even if the first clients, they don't get it, you know, we have an example quite clear. We are working with a unique franchise model. It means we call dealerships, Yamaha dealerships, and we say, okay, do you want to operate in your city with our scooters? Okay. But if I want to streamline this process and there are around 2000 dealerships in Europe, it's not small, it's really big. So I need to be sure that the first one I get and the last one I get, I put exactly the same process and the same rules, you know. That's where it makes it hard because if you are the boss of the company, you're like, yeah, okay, the first one, I need to be sure. It's really extra special for them, but ultimately you really need to apply the same rules. The second one, which I think is the hardest, is that you want to scale fast. You have huge velocity in the company, but the only thing that cannot be made with velocity is the maturity of the people in there. Because even if I give you a super huge title, you don't grow as a human being as fast as the company grows. So you make mistakes and you need to allow your people to make mistakes, basically. I love that. I'm taking notes here. That is such good stuff. I really love the idea of kind of the franchise concept and, and taking that mindset into growing the company. And to your point, everything is exception-based when you've got three, four, five employees, right? But once you get to a certain level, you have to build in that standardization, that process to really grow. So I love the comment on sometimes the people don't develop as fast as the company does. And so that's a really key thing from a learning and development perspective and also hiring the right people who have that type of learning agility and that ability to reach more faster than maybe your typical employee. That's amazing stuff. So let's talk a little bit about Troopy. I know you've talked about a special emphasis on vulnerable groups. And to your point, that's not something that you see a lot of in mobility in general. Why does the company feel it's important to reach these groups? Why is that something that you're doing where other companies in mobility haven't necessarily made that a priority? I think it comes from, first of all, the history of mobility, because you're from the US, so everything was born there, San Francisco, New York, you know, around like 10 to 15 years ago. 
And probably that was never the huge emphasis, the huge focus on, which I can understand because you need to first provide mobility, whatever happens. But then if you refine the idea, of course, you need to include vulnerable people because at some point there is a discrepancy between what your user expect and what the cities expect because part of your clientele, it comes from the city. You know, if you partner with New York City or with Paris, they are institutions, they are politics. So they also need you to involve those people who were never involved in the whole process. And that comes from, as I mentioned, people who have disabilities, but also for senior people. Have you ever seen uh, senior people on the line or on the emo page? And that's not so often. So that's probably the reflection we had very, very early when we restarted Troopy when I arrived saying, okay, if we start from scratch or almost, let's start by doing that right away, right? I love that. Let's take this to another level because I can see how passionate you are about this space. And you and I have talked in our pre-call a little bit about gender equality. That's an area that I'm very passionate about myself. I'm interested, again, let's look at a little bit of the differences of US and France and French-based companies. What does France do maybe differently in terms of gender equality, either positive or negative, that's different than the US or other industrialized companies? Is this a special emphasis in France? What do you see in terms of females being empowered to rise up into leadership roles and make that type of impact? I'm working at the European Commission for that uh, on a special task force when it comes to gender equality in transportation and mobility. So to give you a broad overview of Europe also, because that probably brings you more clarity. Of course, Nordics are always quoted as the most gender equal and stuff, but gender equality comes from two words. The first one is that your users, basically, but it's also your company, right? And for us, what matter the most is of course the users, because the company basically, you can fix it at some point quite easily because you hire good people and I know that's your job and you are way better than I am in that, but structuring company, including gender equality, that's easy. Putting the right principle in there, it's less easy. And that's why we developed something called the Troopy Academy, which is internal platform where my employees, basically, they can go and learn through YouTube videos, through podcasts, through articles about what is exactly gender equality, because it means everything and nothing. It's not just only about 50-50, right? It's also about how do I even envision the society for a woman? You know, if I go to a bus and I'm a woman and it's 10 o'clock in the evening, I have 60% more chance to get mugged or to get harassed. That's facts. Those are facts. So, and yeah. I think that's super important for us also to provide those data so that the people, they can understand what are we really talking about. And then the second part I mentioned are the users. And that's something way harder because when it comes to Lopez, for instance, only 30% of the users are women. So how do you do that women feel more safe and more comfortable to drive a Lopez? So, and that comes of course, always through education. So we do free lessons for them, how to drive, how to park, how to put the helmet and stuff. But ultimately, it's also about the society, you know, that they don't finger point women when they drive, for instance. I think you made a really key point, right? Obviously, gender equality is something that's very important, right? Giving people opportunities, no matter their gender, is really key. But I think there's also something to be said about understanding that there are differences as well. And you pointed out, like, there's this silly controversy going right now, something in America that's been over-politicized. What else is new? It's about crash test dummies and how the crash test dummies have always been built to male standards. And actually, women are getting in accidents and getting hurt more because they actually haven't built the crash test dummies to female standards, whether it be weight, distribution, all that different stuff, right? And so what's interesting is that like, we have to acknowledge that there are differences, right? But that doesn't mean that they're better or worse. There's just differences. And I think any good program is going to acknowledge that 
while still trying to create opportunity, historically, that's not been great, but obviously for go forward. And I think that's a really key thing that you point out. I really love that. Anything you want to add to that? That's actually funny because I did recently a conference about that. And the crash test dummy is always something you showcase. The first story was in the 70s when they started this crash test dummy. The proportional size was 1.5 for 50 kilo. While women, obviously now it's not this size anymore. But I think when you look at it from a different perspective, yes, of course, it's not good. Yes, it's got to be better. We are talking about 50 years in the humankind, you know, and when we look at that in 200 years, probably it's going to be just a short amount of time. So I think we also need to kind of take a deep breath about that. Great perspective on your part. All right, listen, our podcast is about hiring. I know you gave me a compliment earlier, but listen, you obviously don't get to the position you're in without being really great at hiring. And so we want to dive in a little bit and learn about some of your philosophies and favorite questions, things like that. So let's start there. In terms of people that you want to bring into Troopy, do you have an overall hiring philosophy, whether it be for your own direct team or just anybody at large that comes into the organization? I think I have two major principles. The first one is if you are a good leader, which I hopefully am, things you always bring with you people from other companies, right? If you really structure and people like you, like your style, then they come with you from company to company. That's probably the first thing. And that also makes you evolve as a leader. Because as a leader, you're like a soccer coach, right? If the team gets good results, it's not only thanks to you, it's thanks to their work on the field. So that's probably how I would perceive it. The second rule I have is always bet on four people that are surrounding you. And those people need to bet on the next four people. Because I think what matters the most for me is, of course, the resume. And you know it better than I do. The resume is crucial, but probably the values and their capacity to understand what you are asking from them. That's really important, especially in a startup where you're like a chef. You manage the sauce, the desserts, the meat and stuff, and they have to work on their own silo, right? But they also need to understand why you are asking them all those questions, all those projects, and what is important and what is urgent. And those four people, they need to understand that. And then you give them the flame like in, at the Olympics and you say, okay, now you hire four people that surrounds you exactly the same. That's great. And listen, one of the greatest predicators of somebody's future success in a role opportunity is if you've worked with them before. If you as a leader know their style, if you know their approach, and that you can somewhat recreate the environment where you've had success, together in the past. It's not 100%, but that's a great predicator. And then to your point about football, we can talk about the PSG coach all we want, but at the end of the day, it comes down to Neymar and Messi and Mbappe and all those great players on the field. And he's got to empower them to be able to do what they do great. So I think that is really, really good advice. If you have a favorite question that comes to mind, is there something when you're talking and you're interviewing, is there a question that you repeatedly ask that you think really gets to the heart of what you're looking for? I think there are two types of questions I like. The first one is Back to my background in consulting is like, how do you solve such an issue? And for instance, we always have this super tough question about there is this huge problem at the company and I'm not there, you know, how do you do that? How do you manage to solve this issue? Example, somebody got a huge accident on a mobile, which unfortunately can happen. How do you manage and what's your takeaway on that? Basically problem solving, right? That's definitely your consulting experience. All the situational questions I've heard from consultants like, whether it be how many golf balls can you fit into a bus or how many pizzas can be ordered in Florida. Like everybody I know who comes from a consulting background, those situational questions, they show you how people think. So I think that's really good. Go ahead. You had another one? Yes. It's about problem solving, but it's also about how do you anticipate what the guy in front of me is basically asking me for? Because I don't care that you get the good results. If you get the good process that then I'm reassured that your brain is working a bit like mine. 
And on the other hand, those prospective questions, basically, if I give you a magic wand, where would you be in five years? You know, yeah. it's not about which job, because I'm fine if the guys or the girls say, okay, in five years, I'm on the beach in Bali. That's fine. Just, okay, how can I help you constructing that for the next five years? Because you know that if you are hiring in a startup, looking at the probability and the odds, in five years, either way, you get a super great success and there is an exit or you did not success. And then probably some people, they will just run away from the company. So sure. that's how I like to structure the question. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. That future vision, where do they see themselves? You'll learn what they're motivated about, what they're passionate about, what's important to them, which is always very key. Going back to the consulting type questions, just because we have some people, I want to give them some tips. Here's my tip. When you get a question like that, ask more questions because number one, there's going to be more details that you need to know to be able to really target that answer. It also give you time to process and come up with your approach and get back. Whenever I, as somebody asks me those types of questions, the first thing I think of is, all right, I got 10 more questions I got to ask you now to be able to get where you want to go. So I think that's good advice. Hopefully you agree, Francois. I don't know. Are you good with that? I think that's fine. <laughs> all right. I'm getting hired at Shoopy, Jackie. <laughs> yes. Sorry. And do the podcast next week. If I ask you for a memorable interview experience, whether you are interviewing somebody or you are interviewing good, bad, you don't have to name names, but what comes to mind when I ask you about that? Plenty of them were not saying normal because especially at Truby, I have this thing. Either way, I have a job desk and I don't have any favorites. So I just go through the process, but there are people I basically want for those jobs. So I try to find them. It can be around a beer or it can be in the middle of a conference I just did. And then I was like, by the end of the discussion, then join Troopy and then the day after the guy was here. So that's what I really like because ultimately that also shows that if you are clear to the job desk in your head, that's probably, I'm reverting a bit the question, but what's really important when you want to hire is like, you need to be clear what your company needs and what you as a leader need. Because otherwise, if you give unclarity or uncertainty, then you lose candidates in the end because they're just like, yeah, okay, those guys, they don't know what they want. So that's probably on my end, but... When it comes to the interview I've been through in my whole life, the funniest one was with my former boss at Lixbus, one of the three founders. And after five minutes, he was like, my kid was sick the whole evening, so I'm super tired. Why don't we discuss about something on your resume? And then he saw that I was in consulting, in a specific consulting. And he was like, oh, but you know that the guy who founding the company was my PhD professor and stuff. That was really funny because ultimately for 15 minutes, we didn't discuss about the job at all. But by the end of the interview, he was like, yeah, you know, uh, it's not because we didn't discuss about the job that I don't know that you don't have the right quality for that. So I also appreciate that. Wow. That's really awesome. And listen, you said something interesting that I wish all hiring managers do. I know a lot of founders look at it this way and a lot of CEOs look at it this way and everybody who's hiring should be. Here at MSH, whenever I meet somebody, right, we look at it as like there's a 360 degree relationship of possibilities, right? You can be an employee at MSH. You can be a candidate with MSH. You can be a customer of MSH, right? And a lot of times it's about identifying what is that best fit at that time. And then so to your point, some of the people that we've hired, I've met at coffee shops. I've met at conferences because my thought process is anytime I meet somebody and maybe it's because I've got a recruiting mindset at all times, there's an opportunity that this could be somebody that could really impact your business in a really positive way. Now, 98% of the time, that's not usually the case. But if I always go in with that mantra of wanting to learn and having authentic curiosity about other people, 
you might be surprised at how many people are in front of you that could be somebody that really changes the game for you from your organization, especially when you focus as much on behavioral interviewing as we do here, because having skills and expertise is important. There's no question about that. But I always am going to look to hire for the attitude is the number one thing, because I think an aptitude in a lot of cases can be trained depending on the position and things like that. You agree? I definitely agree. And also jumping on that, when you are representative of your own company, whereas it's you or I, I think it's really important because we always say we are our best salesman. Basically, if I go to a conference on the train or whatever, whenever it comes to speaking about my company, I try to be the most convincing person, but I also try to revert the impression to the people in front of me that I'm really interested in them, in their stories. And why not create something together? So I really like what you just said. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect. Now, listen, if I've had a couple of beers and I'm watching a football game or a basketball game, then it might not be my best branding at that point. But any other time you find me, I'm probably going to be ready to go. It's important for you to be able to build a candidate experience through your interview process that gives a little bit of an understanding of a realistic job preview of what it's like to work at Troopy, work for you. Is there anything in particular, I know you mentioned that interviewing can be in different settings and different moments and different times, but is there anything in particular you do in the interview process to create a unique candidate experience or give people an understanding of what it's like to work at your company? I think what I really like is those formal moments because we do four hours of interview with three people and then we have the last interview with my president. But in the meantime, I like to take 15 minute coffee, you know, and formal coffee. I'm like, yeah, it's off pitch basically. Let's just talk about you and I. What do you want to tell me more? Because it's really hard to get this extra special thing, extra special moments with the candidates. And I think they buy me, you know, and if, if they join the company, they, they have to buy me in because if they're like, yeah, okay, the guy, I don't like him or he, I don't feel him, then it's not going to be a good match because startup means high pressure, really not so much time with me, but time needs to be efficient. And if it needs to be efficient, then there is need to be trust in between. So those 15 minute coffee break, I really like them. Yeah. Here's what I'll say. And I say this all the time. It's just like relationships of any type. It's not about bad or good. It's about fit, right? And at the end of the day, some people might rail against this company works me 80 hours a week. Yeah, sure. I'm paid, you know, 30% more than I would somewhere else, but I can't stand that. Well, somebody does want that. Somebody does want to, they don't care to work, you know, night and day if they're making the money they want to make or they have the freedom that whatever it may be. Right. So it really just comes down to, am I finding the right match for me as a leader, for our company, what our values are, what our principles are. And if you're not a fit for that, that's not the end of the world. That's fine. There's going to be plenty of companies that fit maybe what your expectations are. But I think that idea of that puzzle piece coming together, I think is a really, really important thing. The key to that is as an individual, you've got to know yourself. What is important to me? What do I prioritize from a professional perspective? And then go out and seek that in the boss and the company that you're looking for. And I think if people did that and were more analytical about that, I feel like we wouldn't have so many low tenures or people leaving for new jobs or people being unhappy or unsatisfied in their work. I think that's a really key aspect. When you miss on somebody, and we all do, what Typically, when you look back, what do you wish you would have done different? Or is there a theme there that maybe comes to mind? I think you can approach the question on two sides. The first one is, in French, we say things happen for a good reason. First one is things happen for a good reason because it's just not the correct timing, the correct fit, as you mentioned, the correct match. And that's something, unfortunately, you cannot push forward because at some point it would have come out as a breakage between you and the person. So you don't have to have any regrets. But sometimes you miss because you just missed something in the process or you were not convincing enough or you, I don't know, you know, sometimes that great loads on the road and you just don't make it. And there you just try to see what can you do better the next time. We had, for instance, an example of a guy we hired for a position and I had to let him leave. 
because he was not a good match. And the issue with this person was not even about the skill set. It was about the skill set, but also about the personality. He was behaving as if he was in a company from the 80s, which right. obviously didn't work out. Here we work in full transparency. We say things to each other and we try to be also nice. And this was not really working out with this person. And I'm like, yeah, okay, so how can you basically anticipate that next time? Because it, you know, it's deeply rooted in people. And sometimes in an interview process, you're not always going to be able to get deep enough to find that out until they're actually working, right? Yeah, that's the point. And how can you figure out you? And in France, we have kind of a notice period. Just thanks to the notice period, we can work on that. But ultimately, at some point, if the guy provides a good fit when it comes to skill sets, how do you manage it? And also, what's the balance between the skill set and the personality? Which compromise are you ready to make? For At this time, we're not ready to make the compromise on the personality because it's too important to build the company with these assets. And this guy was not a good fit. But next time, how do you make sure it doesn't happen anymore, right? I love that. That's great. So let's move on. I want to learn a little bit more about Troopy and yourself. Let's talk about your day-to-day. CEO, high-growth mobility company in France, where do you spend the majority of your time? I get meetings, but like, who are you spending your time with? How are you making a big impact when you have a very productive day and you put your head down at night and go to bed? What happened that day that made it so productive? That's a funny question because as I say, the life I have is like, you're like in the washing machine, basically. You start at eight and about, I don't know which hour, but not any day is definitely the same because you spend a lot of time with investor, pitching, preparing, fine tuning the numbers, definitely. You also spend a lot of time with medias in conferences and also to advertise on the company, meet new people, be sure that you are correctly represented, especially for Troopy because Troopy was a no brand before. And I had to steroid a bit the company quite fast to make sure that we from a really slow company will become a European leader quite fast. So that's also what you promised to the investors. Right. And of course, at some point I have to work on my own project because I have my own project. And that requires a lot of time. So probably it's a good mixture between the three of them. And of course, in the meantime, you have a lunch with an investor, journalist, or sometimes people from my company, if we have specific one-on-ones there. So that's basically the overarching view of my calendar. Always on the move. I love that. I love the washing machine analogy. Is there something you're working on at the company or even outside of the company right now that you're really juiced about, something you're very excited about that you want to share with us? My role is also to bring... UT in the company and we are bringing charging stations into the idea of Troopy because Troopy, as I mentioned, will develop into franchise. And one of the role of the franchise is also to provide a new mobility system in a smaller city. Let's say if you know Europe a bit, you're going to come to France in June. So you see that there is Paris city, but of course there are also other cities in France that want to develop and they want to have a better offer when it comes to mobility. So we provide them with scooters, but we are also looking into charging station for electric vehicles, whereas it's four wheelers or two wheelers. And that's something we are looking into because it's still a kind of an untapped market, you know, when we see that as an opportunity for Troopy. I love that. Exciting space to be in right now. There's a lot of opportunity. I want to read a LinkedIn post that you had, and it goes back to the vulnerability that we talked about earlier, but I want to know your thoughts around why you posted this and why this was an area of particular interest for you, including the most vulnerable ones, acting for climate, be a society. These are the engagements we take with Intermobility Network all over Europe with each of the leaders that accepted to join us. As King Arthur once said, you can doubt about everything but the necessity to fight for the most vulnerable ones, including disabilities and micro-ability, enhancing security and transportation, tracking and improving gender equality and gender acceptance in our companies. Now, this has been a theme. I'm interested. This was something that obviously resonated with you. I love the King Arthur quote. Tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you posted this and what came about. 
It's always a bit tricky to pose that because you never know how your audience will respond to that because it's really intimate. You know, it's not about, oh yeah, to be achieved, X thousand, right? That's two times up, definitely. But when it comes to those topics that are society topics in the end, you want to convey also who you are deeply. And this intermobility network we created, we basically gathered CEOs, association, institution in Europe, and we created a free network and just say, okay, if you want to work with us, just come to the Slack group, the WhatsApp group, and we meet and we try to work on those projects. We are launching a shared report for next year. We'll just say, okay, this is where inequalities are and that's how we're going to tackle them. And why do I think it's super important and also a bit more intimate? It's because that's something you, you want to convey that doesn't bring any profitability to your company. Ultimately, it doesn't bring any revenue added to your company. But it's also something, if you don't do it as you are CEO of a company, who's going to do it? And that's probably the idea I want to say. And that's why I love the King Arthur quote, because as part as you have responsibility and power, and you can have an impact, right? And that's probably why we are discussing today. Also, it's how you can have an impact on hiring, of course, but also as a leader. And probably that's something you want to transmit to the people you hire. Yeah, 100%. It's important to set the bar for who you are and who you want to be as a company and what's important to you and what your values are. And like you mentioned, with great power comes great responsibility. So those words matter, right? To the people that work in your company, to the people that are potential customers, I applaud you for that. I love that King Arthur quote. I'm definitely going to use that. So we're going to wrap up here, Francois. I want to know what's one bit of career advice you'd offer to somebody early in their career that maybe you didn't know when you started your career, but that you know now. In a nutshell, I did a lot of mistakes, really a lot of mistakes in my career. But the only thing I understood too late probably is that you never compromise with who you are, you know? And I only discovered quite late that I was entrepreneur. I want to create, I want to develop people. I want to develop projects. And probably the only piece of advice is never compromise on who you are. If you're not this data-driven guy that goes to consulting, then go somewhere else because there you will have impact, you know. That's incredible advice. I really enjoyed the episode, Francois. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be copying some links in so people can learn about Troopy and maybe see some of those YouTube videos. Thank you so much for taking the time for us today. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.